IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to IB Talk, the insurance business podcast in which we speak to some of the leading names across the global insurance industry. We hope that you and your families are keeping well amid the coronavirus pandemic and that we can offer a, a light distraction during your working day. Um, alongside me today, I'm thrilled to welcome a man who I dare say is at the very top of the insurance industry and something like one of our own, as he's a regular columnist for Insurance Business UK. He is the CEO of the London and International Insurance Brokers Association, Christopher Croft. Christopher, welcome to IB Talk. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Um, it's a pleasant distraction from the not working from home routine. <laughs> um, so, 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 Christopher, you are the, the CEO of, of Lever, but you've certainly got a, a wide perspective outside the industry. Um, you've spent time, time at the likes of uh, the Department of Transport, uh, the Financial Conduct Authority, which for our overseas listeners is uh, the leading regulatory body in the UK. Um, tell us a little bit about how your career progressed and, and how you found yourself in such high profile roles. Um, yes, um, almost entirely by accident, as I, I think everybody in insurance t- t- tends to say at this point. Um, I mean, I, I left university um, without any idea of what I wanted to do, but I'd studied philosophy, politics and economics. So the idea of working in government seemed um, a reasonable one. Um, so I spent a year as an economist at the Department of Transport privatising trains. Um, which actually turned out to be quite soul-destroying because it was the tail end of, um, it was by um, then the major government, but of the Thatcherite privatisations. And um, privatisations of trains, it it sort of worked in very strict economic theory terms, but it was unclear from a sort of common sense angle how it would necessarily ever work. Um, And also featured some sort of spectacular infighting between the newly sort of partitioned parts of the industry um, who all several weeks before had worked for British Rail but now were were at each other's throats. (laughs) So it was an interesting introduction to the world of of work. Um, Having said that, I think overall privatisation of the railways has probably worked out slightly better. I think the people who now clamour for the renationalisation, forget how bad British Rail was. <laughs> so um, anyway, I did that for a year <laughs> and then decided I couldn't stand it anymore. Um, <laughs> and I had done a, one of the summer jobs I did when uh, when I was at university was um, working with a journalist who was actually taking on the cases of people who'd been victims of home income plans where financial advisors were um, advising people to remortgage their house and invest the money and claiming that you'd be able to meet the mortgage payments and provide an income on top of that. Um, and many people were losing their houses in part because of the, the property crash. Um, so I'd, I'd already developed an interest in a sort of niche part of financial services, but I got the opportunity to work for what was then the PIA Ombudsman, so the Personal Investment Authority, which was a precursor, one of the regulators that merged into the Financial Services Authority, which is the sort of predecessor to the FCA today. Um, And so I spent some time um, handling um, complaints from people who'd been 
felt they'd been poorly advised by their financial advisor, which is an interesting insight into how easily the British public are um, separated from their life savings. Uh, sort of terror, terrifyingly naive um, decisions that some people take, but um, hopefully where there was um, strong evidence that they'd been misled, we managed to get them um, compensation. Um, and then I sort of drifted, one of the advantages of working for um, a quasi government body like well, FSA was, um, was that you could sort of, within reason, do what you wanted. If you found something interesting and you could persuade someone that it was a worthy piece of work, um, they sort of let you get on with it. So, which is, I think, why people stay in those jobs for so long, because they're actually, it's quite interesting doing that. So I ended up sort of off my own back, creating a bit of work. I, I think we established that there were, that FSA published about 28 different telephone numbers publicly and so it was um, reasonably standard practice for firms to keep on ringing different numbers until they got the answer to the question that they wanted <laughs> and it's just <laughs> struck me as not a terribly sensible way to run a regulator so we ran a big program to rationalize the way the fsa communicated with the outside world and try and make it um, much more consistent in its communications and guidance it gave to firms so um yeah that was um, you said you you said that that you uh that the, you know a lot of people who go into those sort of roles spend quite a long time there and i think you were there for just shy of 10 years i mean over you know nearly is that right yeah 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 i was gonna say it's sort of it, in terms of you know being there for, for close to a decade i mean you must have seen some uh you know some really sort of key pieces of, of regulation being passed at that time. And, you know, what, what would you say was sort of the highlight of, of you know, your time and, and something that you were involved with? Um, so I was very closely involved. The PIA had no, at the start, had no um, authority over individuals in the in the industry, only, only authorised the firms. Um, and that was as because of a um, PIA was formed by a merger itself of FIMBRA, which was the regulatory authority for independent financial advisors, and Lautro, which was the uh, uh, regulator of the sort of life assurers. Um, and um, and Lautro had sort of won all the competition for the top jobs, and Lautro didn't have uh, com control over individuals that FIMBRA had, but they said so they decided um, that the Lautro route was the right one to go through. But then the bearings collapse happened, and whilst the PIA didn't regulate the bearings, because that was, I think, IMRO and the SFA for fans of regulatory history, um, the, um, it became apparent to the PIA at that point that had bearings happened, a, a bearing style event happened on their patch, they wouldn't have been able to take any action against Nick Leeson, and that felt wrong to them. So we embarked on a program to introduce what was called individual contracts. So um, we changed the PIA handbook to make it a uh, um, requirement that people in client-facing roles and senior management signed an individual uh, registration agreement with the um, with the regulator that gave, would give them power in, in circumstances to take action against individuals as well as firms, which was involved uh, fundamental change to the handbook, fundamental change to policy, selling that policy to firms who weren't particularly enamored of the idea. And then also um, we had to completely um, overhaul the PIA's IT systems to cope with the registration process. So um, 
and and it led led to me ending up at the end of it in the in the IT department as a sort of business analyst and then program manager. Um, when um, I had never previously really known how to, how to work computers, <laughs> and arguably still don't. <laughs> <laughs> it, it must be a, you know an exhaustive process, um, you know, in terms of you know, creating new regulation. I mean, there, there's so many steps to take. Yeah, um, and um, it, it, it was it was, uh, it, and you get to work with some extraordinary people. So the chief lawyer at the PIA, whose name's now going to escape me, which is quite shocking, but she was an extraordinary woman and um, and a brilliant lawyer, and but worked very strange hours. Um, and there was a legendary piece of, of sort of, uh, they really should have preserved it, sort of PIA um, memorabilia, I suppose, is, I mean, this was still in the days when people used to dictate onto um, tapes and, and secretaries would type it up afterwards. And Beryl Mustle, that's what she was called, Beryl Mustle was in the PIA offices in the Canada Square Tower in Canary Wharf when the Canary Wharf bomb went off, which actually it was over the other side of the dock, um, but yeah, close enough. Um, <laughs> for this not to be a sensible thing, but um, so the but the tape <laughs> certainly used to exist. Maybe and I'd like to think someone's kept it, and it involves Beryl going, bang, oh, and just carrying on. So you got some um, yeah, interesting life experiences like that. Yeah, and fast forward a little bit, and tell us how you came to your to your current role um you know how you sort of became sort of firmly entrenched in the insurance industry and and, and into the position you are now so i had done at the latter tail end of my career at the um at the regulator i'd done a little bit of work around when um insurance brokers became brought within the scope of fsa regulation in um 2004 um and so I, so I was, I guess the, what insight that gave me, which was useful later, was the knowledge of how little the regulator understands the London market in particular, um, because I sat on various committees where no one, I subsequently realised, knew what they were talking about when they talked about <laughs> London market insurance. Um, and then I, I, I just left the FSA because I, as you've already alluded to, I suddenly realized I'd nearly been there for 10 years. So I just, and I, so I did some bits of consultancy for a couple of years. And then I was on holiday in uh, Santa Fe in New Mexico, um, the morning after the 2006 midterm elections. Um, uh, and the phone went quite early in the morning because it's, it's New Mexico's seven hours behind. Um, and I had had one of those, yeah, shall I answer it, shan't I, sort of ponders, and then right at the last minute did answer it. And it was some recruitment consultant offering me in a job in what was then the market reform program office, um, which latterly um, evolved into the London market group. Um, and I'd sort of heard it, it sounded quite interesting. So I said, all right. And they organised an interview for when I got back, and and in the end, I I got the job and accepted it. So it is the classic London market story. I stumbled into it almost by accident because um, I could very easily have decided not to answer the phone, and then I probably would never have rung the bloke back, even if he'd have left a message. 
Um, <laughs> but that would have been, yeah, um, November 2006. So I started in the Market Reform Programme Office in 2007 and became head of that um, a couple of years later and then obviously morphed into LMG. Um, and so the things that I think um, I always like to promote as, as the things that I achieved whilst I was at LMG was I was responsible for the first London Matters report, which I think um, did as much as anything to completely change the narrative around London and establish very firmly in people's minds the fact that London is very much an economic cluster and that they're very rare and should be cherished, but you need to understand you are a cluster in order to cherish it properly. And and was the first um, piece of work that established, um, without doubt, the, you know, the size of the market and our contribution to GDP. And it was that data that I think completely revolutionised our relationship with government because it allowed us to make the case that you know, we're a vibrant, large, um, interesting financial services sector in our own right and we're not banks and we're not the rest of the insurance industry and we needed to be treated a bit differently um so london matters was was a big thing i also personally filled in the um forms for companies house to incorporate placing platform limited ppl which is as we speak absolutely proving its worth that you know, we would not be in a position for the market to be relatively seamlessly trading remotely without the extraordinary investment that everyone's made in adopting electronic trading over the last three to four years. And I convened the first meeting of what became the ILS task force that um, was responsible for the change in legislation that allowed the creation of ILS vehicles in the UK. Um, so I was relatively pleased with that as a, as a trio. Yeah, just some some minor achievements there, <laughs> but no, no, so some fantastic stuff. Uh, but I, I, I want to sort of move, move on now to, to to just to talk about the situation that we're in, I guess, because uh, and just to, to give um, our, our listeners some insight, I approach all of our guests sort of ahead of these podcasts and, and just say, you know, what, what industry issue would you like to focus on right now? And I think. Um, there was really no choice except to talk about, you know, the, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and, and again, just for the sake of our listeners, um, you know, we are recording this a few weeks in advance of publication. And we are aware, of course, that you know, this is a fast moving situation. Um, but tell me, as it stands right now, um, how's the pandemic impacted you and indeed Lieber? Um, well, it is very different. I mean, I, I've, now this is... Um, just to sort of to finish the career thing, I'm now into my I think fifth year at Lieber, and and it was always my intent. It, I always it was interesting. So having had that in sort of accidental run through a career, um, the chief executive of Lieber was the job that I really wanted after LMG. I had to wait for David Huff to retire, and I was very fortunate that they asked me to do it. But so, um, and it's allowed me to take forward the, those. Um, yeah, we do work a lot around PPL and. Um, and we are, are, are very um, at the centre of contributing to the subsequent iterations of the London Matters Report. And we do use all that data in our relationship with regulators and governments all the time. Um, coronavirus is just the, the latest challenge to um, to our ways of working. But and, I mean, specifically from Libra, we slightly fortuitously, we transferred everything into the cloud about a year ago. So we we can all work from home very satisfactorily um, and we put 
uh, bit the bullet and invested in four Microsoft Teams licenses. So we're um, hosting meetings um, and video meetings with members all the time. Um, and we have a we have a team meeting every morning at 10 o'clock. So everyone remembers what the other person looks like. So it's, uh, um, so whilst it's it's strange um, and very much business as unusual, as I believe the current um, catchphrase is, um, where you can still function. Um, and obviously, um, I hope we're providing a pretty vital service to members, keeping them abreast of anything they need to know about coronavirus, whether it's the stuff the FCA is putting out, whether it's how you access some of the government schemes. Um, what's happening, you the last couple of days, you had the Californian State Insurance um, Commissioner um, fundamentally mandating the return of premiums across a number of lines of business. So, you know, A, keeping members abreast of that sort of development, but also working in that case with our colleagues at the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers in Washington as to how we as a sector should respond to that. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> incredibly busy, but hopefully um, uh, providing some fairly vital support to a membership that's in in some instances will be hugely challenged by coronavirus because if you are um, if you possess a client base that's in an industry that's been badly affected then those firms are struggling and if those firms are struggling then the knock-on effect will, on you will also be severe so we've got yeah it's a very real issue for a lot of our members. I mean it sounds like you were sort of at Libra as, as, as well prepared as it was possible to be. Um, but I, I, there's a lot of controversy right now, isn't there? I mean, if I look, you know, perhaps for, for some of our listeners over in Canada, for example, there's a sort of a major um, class action being brought against a, a number of insurers there, sort of suggesting that, um, you know, the coronavirus pandemic was a sort of a, a foreseeable event just by, you know, the, the past with, uh, with SARS and, and so on. Um, from your perspective, I mean, not necessarily focusing on, on, on that issue specifically, but do you think the insurance industry in general could have been better prepared for something like this? Or, or is it just something that, you know, nobody could have seen coming? Um, well, I mean, I think part of the sort of fundamental role of the insurance industry is to um, be expert in, in the management of risk. And, and so... It, it ought to have been a scenario that people had looked at um, and to a degree I think they had I think you know you, you're now in the midst of a crisis um, and you won't we won't really know until we're out the other side and, and we can um, engage in calm analysis of what went on the extent to which you know, industries were or weren't prepared um, I think it's I mean the, the debate around business interruption coverage is one in which our industry will not look good to the wider public because the wider public doesn't readily accept the argument that if you um you haven't bought cover you can't make a claim and and their natural assumption and you can you know, absolutely understand this is that if you're a business and you buy business interruption insurance and your business ends up being interrupted you ought to be insured and nuances like pandemic exclusions just don't make um you know sense to the wider public so it, it's inevitable that our public reputation will um, be tarnished a little bit I think to a degree at the moment um, and uh, you know, back to your point that <laughs> this won't go out for a few weeks but at the moment our, our, our 
reputation in the eyes of the wider public is being um, helped by the um, work of the banks and premiership footballers to dominate the headlines and keep keep the press away from us. But um, I think it's one of the concerns about the, the crisis as a whole is, is how will the insurance industry emerge in terms of its public reputation? And there is a possibility that 2020 for insurance will be what 2008 was for banks. And so I do think we need to be wise to that. And, and we are, and we're having discussions with our colleagues at IMA, RUA, the LMA and Lloyds about what the right response for the industry to make is to, to make sure we're seen to be doing the right thing. And also obviously because we want to do the right thing by clients. Well, you, you wrote a column for us a short while ago, and, and if anyone missed it, um, the headline that, that we put on it was, uh, time for the insurance industry to step up is now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, and, and I think the theme of, of what you were talking about throughout there was that you, know, you see this as potentially a, an, an opportunity for the industry. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is the chance for us to... Um, uh, Get the you know, I mean what we what what our industry does best is put people's lives to, back together in the wake of catastrophe. It's um, you know it, happen, it can happen with viruses as much with hurricanes and earthquakes, um, and you know there will be some debate around um, some of the coverage, but um, the, you know, the the our claims framework is undeniably the most efficient mechanism of getting money to. Uh, affected, you know, badly affected businesses, and we have been in discussions with Treasury about whether they would use that to, to in order to pump public funds into those businesses, even where there might not be insurance coverage. Um, also, very supportive of the um, moves that we've seen actually today from the FCA um, with its dear CEO letter about encouraging the industry to be very timely in in resolving grey areas of coverage and pay claims as soon as they identify that they're going, you know, the, the um, insurance should respond. And I think that's very important because we can't have a situation where disputes over coverage are actually settled by insurers in, uh, engaging in lengthy litigation that um, resolves the issue because at some point the client goes bankrupt. Um, so there is an opportunity by doing the right thing by our clients and providing the expertise that we have in both insurers and brokers, that we can really be at the centre of, of re- reconstructing the economy and putting the UK back to work again as we emerge from lockdown. And I think it's it's vital that we, we do play that part. And when things are comparatively under control, um, where do you think the insurance industry will sit? Do you think there are going to be some big changes compared to what we sort of saw as the norm previously? Undoubtedly. I mean, there there is no doubt that as and when we return to EC3, we'll be going back to a very different world to the one that we all left on that Monday evening, whenever it was. It now seems <laughs> several decades ago. Um, but, um, I mean, what's been demonstrated over the last four weeks is that the market can um, trade remotely. The usage statistics on PPL and, and other electronic trading solutions are very significantly up. There's a lot of business being placed across it. Um, interestingly, I've, having spent about f- the last four years trying to persuade people that one of the great benefits of an electronic trading platform is the interchange agreement which sits behind it, which makes um, every trade absolutely legally certain. 
um, something that no one ever, <laughs> ever bought into. Now that Lloyd's has been forced to publish a document that uh, runs to, I think, about 10 pages explaining the complexities you need to go through to produce a legally certain email trade, suddenly people are getting this argument. So um, that, I think that's actually genuine progress. But you know, finance directors, when we return, are going to note the fact that they haven't had people in really expensive offices in London, and yet trading has still happened. Um, and we are going to have to accept as a market that no one will have had a physical face-to-face -face negotiation for months, and yet the sky hasn't fallen in. So the, <laughs> the fundamentals around how we trade are, um, are going to be very different, and I think we'll see a lot more hot desking, far fewer staff in London offices. I think the concept of an underwriter having box space in the Lloyds building and, an, and a desk in a, another expensive office somewhere else in EC3 will just appear bizarre once we get back. Um, and, and I would expect to see growth in trading staff outside of London who, who come in only when they need to. So a process that you've seen some of our larger members already begin to introduce, um, I, I see a big acceleration of that. So great news for the Chelmsford economy. And, 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 what, and what about you personally? Do you think you, you'll make some changes on the back of this? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I mean we're a small team. There's a, um, uh, seven of us, uh, but um, I would imagine uh, certainly they, you know, um, one of our associate directors is really enjoying working from home, and I'd imagine she'll want to carry on doing it. Not every day, but I would see that we'll be far more flexible around. Um, when people are and aren't in the office um, because we've seen how remote meetings work quite well. Um, one of the things we did initiate just before we went into lockdown was um, looking at overhauling our, our audiovisual capability, which is really quite archaic, but was fine when we were having physical meetings and all you needed was to put some slides on the screen. But I would imagine that more and more of our committee meetings will be online with a few people in the in the meeting room and we need the technology that will help us make those work so we're going to buy a fancy telly i think was the conclusion of that piece of work well I'm, I'm among the sort of the issues of obviously with the coronavirus going beyond the insurance industry of course is, is the idea that people are, are not able to travel or at least that travel is very much restricted and i know that you're somebody who likes to um, spend a lot of time in, in south america um i i believe that you study politics of the area at university and um, yeah. tell us a little bit about that fascination and, and why you enjoy going there so much um so i mean i grew up in the 80s fascinated by politics generally and and the great sort of romantic political cause of the 1980s was the sandinista government in nicaragua um which had overthrown the dictator anastasio somoza in 1979 but then was engaged in this um uh, sort of David and Goliath struggle with the Reagan administration sponsoring uh, um, insurgent forces in, in the Nicaraguan Civil War. Um, so I became fascinated by the Sandinistas. I should sort of, at this point, I don't, but I've never really had any political beliefs. I'm just fascinated by politics as a process. So um, the result of my fascination with Sandinistas is that um, in the year before I went to university, I went to Central America with a couple of friends. We went to the 1990 Nicaraguan presidential elections um, and saw Daniel Ortega address a crowd of half a million people in Managua. 
which is a city with a population of 800,000. So um, sort of like five million Britons turning out to see John Major, which seemed an unlikely concept at the time. <laughs> um, and um, two days later, he lost. So it <laughs> was quite interesting. Um, a lot of people, they, I mean, the Americans had invaded Panama six months beforehand, and that had um, set a lot of uh, Nicaraguan's uh, minds whirring as to um, were Ortega to win, which he, all the opinion polls predicted he would. Then um, the, the uh, uh, Marines would arrive the next day. Um, but that sort of kick-started my fascination in, in the politics of the Americas. And then um, at university, I became very in. Um, sort of engrossed by the 1992 US presidential election and Clinton's campaign, which is interesting because the people who ran um, the Sandinista campaign in 1990 um, uh, included people like David Axelrod and David Plouffe, who then worked with Clinton, um, worked with the Blair administration and ended up running the Obama campaign in 2008. Um, and the Sandinista slogan in 1990 was, Toda sera mejor, everything will be better. Um, and seven years later, that became, things can only get better for Tony Blair. So it was very much a template. Um, so that, that, that continued my fascination. I've, I've now tend to go on holiday to elections. I've um, certainly been at the, in, in the States for the last three presidential elections. I saw... Barack Obama addressed a crowd of 90,000 in Manassas in Virginia the night before he was elected, which was quite a special experience. Um, and I saw Trump twice, Mike Pence once, and Hillary Clinton once in the 2016 election. So um, I tend to go and hang out in contestable states and end up in very strange places. Like, uh, Mike Pence I saw at Hickory Regional Airport in North Carolina, um, where most US airports will call themselves international if they've got one flight a week to Canada. So it shows you <laughs> how remote Hickory, North Carolina is. Um, but I find particularly there, um, the, the, the reporting of US politics in, in the UK is, is abysmal. And the only way you can get a real picture of what's going on is by being there. Um, and the um, having been there and having been there in sort of 2015 as well, um, I became convinced Trump would be president a, a year before he was elected um, and and used to tell people so and everyone would tell me I was mad and then I had a glorious period after November 2016 of saying I told you so to lots of people um, and then Latin America just I, I, I mean I just um, you know, t totally fascinated by the by the politics and the people and the culture um, so yeah, many enjoyable trips. I went to uh, La Higuera in Bolivia where they shot Che Guevara a couple of years ago, which is um, the remotest place I've ever been to in, in my life. It took me three days of traveling to get there. Um, and then eventually to get there, you have to get a bus up a mainly unmade up road from Santa Cruz, which is the nearest city to Via Grande, where um, Guevara's body was put on display to the world's press. Um, and then uh, from Via Grande, you have to find a taxi driver who's prepared to drive two and a half hours up a stone track um, along the edge of the Cordillera Real to, to La Higuera, which is just a collection of houses because he was fighting a guerrilla war, so he was really, really out of the way. Um, but was 
I don't know. I mean, um, I, I just like the idea of going to places that I've read about and thought about for, you know, in that case, probably about 30 years, been, been reading um, books around Guevara and the Cuban Revolution and and his the, um, the fights in the Congo and then his, his attempts to foment a, a revolution in, in Bolivia. Um, so I've always had a picture in my mind of what La Higuera was, was like. Um, um, and the reality was much, much more beautiful, interestingly. <laughs> I'm thinking you should probably have your own sort of uh, political podcast, perhaps. But um, <laughs> for, for, for us, I mean, we, we've kind of overrun a little bit on our time already. So I just want to give people opportunity if, if they wanted to, to, to reach out to you, Christopher, whether it was to talk about um, South American politics or, or just to talk about the insurance industry in general. Um, is there any way that they can contact you, perhaps through LinkedIn or something like that? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can enjoy um, spectacular pictures of my dogs and and my colleague James Livett's appalling taste in shirts and jumpers, but um, we can mix in some Latin American politics amongst that. So we haven't even got on to my return visit to Managua and seeing Ortega again last year, so there's there's scope for for people, but I accept it's a niche interest. <laughs> well, no, I think it's a great discussion. Um, but, but yeah, no, definitely. We'll hopefully we'll uh, find some time to, to talk again in the future. Uh, but for now, um, just to, for everybody listening, um, we hope you are safe and well, and that we'll tune in next time. Um, I've been Paul Lucas. This is IB Talk, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of IB Talk. Follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts for the latest episodes. 